Support for Fieldwork is provided by Manitou Fund. Hey everyone, Mitchell Hora here with Fieldwork. We hope that everyone is staying healthy during the coronavirus outbreak. Just a heads up that we recorded this episode when coronavirus wasn't at the top of everyone's list of issues. Our responsibilities as farmers is to provide food, fuel, and fiber to the world. And that role is more important than ever. We hope that you'll still find the information in this episode interesting and entertaining, even if you have a lot of other things on your mind. Stay safe, keep a positive mindset, and thanks for listening to the Fieldwork Podcast. Is this going to be with the actual millennial farmer or just a stunt double? Oh, yeah, stunt this, double. This is the uh, stunt double. Zach's actually a fake farmer anyway. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Zach Johnson. Hey, I'm Mitchell Hora. You're listening to Fieldwork Podcast, a show where we talk about sustainable agriculture and the challenges and benefits of adopting sustainable practices. Season one's episodes were heavily focused on row crop farmers, and so we're excited to start digging a little bit more into livestock now in season two. Um, In fact, we decided it was a good idea to talk about what happens when you combined livestock and row crops. There's a lot of reasons for digging into this. Um, Big one for me is integrating livestock is one of the five principles of soil health. And uh, just being able to look at, I think, an additional revenue stream. Uh, But what I hear anyway is livestock are a heck of a lot of work. You know, I've noticed that by watching other people do that work. Um, So today we're actually talking to two different people at really different stages of working with livestock on their farms. Uh, first up is going to be a neighbor of mine. He's another millennial farmer from Washington County, Iowa. Uh, Michael Vitito is his name. He purchased a couple head of cattle to roam on his row crop farm um, here just recently, a couple years ago. And uh, some of the changes that he's seen on his farm have been really, really interesting. So there's another millennial farmer out there? Another millennial farmer. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think according to our script, he is another... Oh, it, he's a millennial farmer. A millennial farmer. Darn millennials. Darn millennials. <laughs> There's a lot of good things to discuss here, so we talked to him on Skype. Let's get to it. All right, Mitchell. So you know Michael. Why don't you? Um, why don't you and Michael? Well, Mitchell's Michael. Mitchell's busy on social media. He's no, one I'm of those literally guys. Snapchatting him. <laughs> well, yeah, he just sent me a Snapchat, so I know how busy he is. <laughs> yeah, right. Michael, is it sunny and 75 in Washington County here today? Every day of the year. That, see, I told you. I've been telling Zach the whole time. <laughs> Down in Washington County, it's sunny in 75 every day. I oh. assumed that. Now it's confirmed. Now it's confirmed, yes. So Michael and I, like, our farms are literally, I think, seven miles apart. Real close together. But, um, Michael, yeah, tell us about your um, your family's operation there. Give us a little background for us. Background on the family's operation. At the current time, I farm with my dad and uh, my grandpa. He's been around forever, but he's he's getting up there, so he's essentially retired. Other than when he wants to come out and hang out on the farm, but we've got about fourteen hundred acres of row crop ground, uh, corn and soybeans, and then we've also got about forty five hundred spaces of hog finishing confinement building. Um, that we own and maintain and do all the chores in and everything, uh, as well as, as a couple nursery buildings that we, we own, um, but we don't do the chores in those. So that's, that's been going on forever. Um, 
stepdad and grandpa, they started no-tilling back in the 80s. So there's been a long history of, you know, soil health and conservation and and everything like that um, on on the operation. And then, oh, it was probably seven, seven or eight years ago now when they started trying cover crops on the operation, just, you know, like a 40-acre field here and there. Getting getting a feel for that, and in the last three, four, five years, we've started ramping that up, and we're up, we're over fifty percent, probably around sixty percent of our acres have have cover crop on them now. So you haven't always had, you haven't always been doing beef production. This is something that's actually relatively new to you. Yeah. So uh, before I started the the beef herd, the cattle herd. Between my dad and I, we had exactly zero years of experience with cattle. Wow. <laughs> nice. And, and exactly zero feet of fence. <laughs> zero feet of fence. <laughs> Literally tore out all the fence. Walk us back through the like the initial pieces here. We know integrating livestock is one of the pillars of soil health, but how did that kind of transition actually come about? Yeah, so I guess I've kind of been on my soil health journey, if that's what you want to call it, since oh end of 2015, early 2016, um, is when I started learning about soil health and and everything that it involves. And you know, right from the get go, you hear you hear everybody that's an expert on it that's further down the road than what I was at that point. Everybody was talking about the livestock integration part and you know, being a, a, a row crop guy that, you know, we've got confinement hogs and everything, like the idea of getting livestock back out on the land was, you know, it's, it's taboo. It's, you don't even, you just kind of brush it off like, oh, that'll, that'll never happen. You know, we're not, we're not going to do that. And so that's essentially how I was for quite a while. But, you know, so I was essentially just looking at the other principles of soil health and trying to figure out how to make that stuff work. And, and, uh, you know, we've, we've done some stuff on the farm with interseeding cover crops into corn and whatnot. And, and the more experience I got with that, the more I started to realize that, Hey, there's, there's a real opportunity here for a grazing component to be added into this. And, it was becoming more apparent that that was going to be essential to making some of that stuff work because just growing these cover crops purely for soil health and trying to increase yields on the row crop side of things, I was having a hard time seeing how that was going to work out. So that's, that's when I started to kind of think about starting a cattle herd and, and whatnot, but I, I was still dragging my feet because I know how much work it's going to be and how much money it's going to cost and, and how long of a process that is before it turns into time and money. Zach. Time. Yeah. I didn't realize Gosh, that it. livestock took time and money. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Me neither. Right. <laughs> no. So I, I was still dragging my feet on it and whatnot, but I, in the back of my mind, I knew it was something that needed to happen. We had, the Soil Health Academy came to Steve Berger's farm in, in Wellman, which is in, in the county, in Washington County. Um, it was one of the first Soil Health Academies that they had. And I had a chance to sit down and talk with Gabe Brown quite a bit at that, you know, in, in between sessions and everything, and was picking his brain. And and it, it just kind of got to the point where, you know, I was at a boiling point where I just, I knew I needed to make something happen. 
And so that was in February, and I kind of decided that's that that next summer I was going to start the cattle herd and whatnot. So I started started doing my research on it, looking into breeds and everything else, and looking for animals to buy and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, and yeah. A, a little like tidbit on Soil Health Academy and Gabe Brown and stuff. Like, so that's Gabe Brown, Ray Archuleta. Um, who else did we have there? So I was at this event as well with Michael. Those guys are like the, the big, kind of big names into it. So cool to be able to like directly sit there and pick their brains. But Michael, I maybe missed it here, but did you say when you actually got into the livestock, what year was that? So how much time do you have into this and how many head are you running right now? It was the spring of 2018. So I'm two, two growing seasons in. So he's Uh, a expert by now yeah exact got it all figured out and how how many head are you running out there uh so right now i've got 17 head total including all of my cows so i essentially have eight cows eight calves and a bull so and how many of you like already harvested i i bought so i bought three steers when i the three steers were my very first animals that i bought and they were about five weights when i got them and they finished out this summer, this past summer in 2019. Um, so they went in and got butchered. Uh, one of them was in August and two of them were in October. And so that, that you know, they're, they're all done. They're through the lockers and, and in customers' freezers and everything. So um, right now everything's just being direct marketed. Can you talk about some of the benefits you've seen to this point? What we are trying to do with our farm operation is mimic the natural ecosystem and nature as close as possible. And in the natural ecosystem, there have always been livestock on the on the ground, in the in the fields and everything, before they were fields and before there was agriculture. And that that consisted of you know whatever the native species were for for any specific reason and with the modern farming methods we have gotten livestock away from the land and into confinements and there has been some unforeseen uh side effect of that and and so we're trying to get the animals back on the land and and the main thing that this is benefiting is from a biological perspective where the animals, you know, whether they're just taking a bite of grass, some of their saliva gets onto the soil in a, in a roundabout way that would not happen if they were in a feedlot. And the same thing out the other end of the, of the animal. Um, we're, at the we, back you know, end. we're getting, yes, we're, we're getting, we're getting biology back into the land in a more direct manner and instead of having that biology go into a a manure pile and and do some transformations and then haul it back out and it's going to be not quite the same so that's the biggest benefit um and then there's also some benefits from just the well-being of the animals themselves you know if they're if they're out on the land breathing fresh air and grazing uh clean forage and fresh forage every day and and moving on and 
it's good for the animals themselves to be able to do that. That's that's one of the main things that that we enjoy about having the animals back on the land. So you're kind of you're you're completing the natural cycle by using, you know, some of your own nutrients, your own crops, your own grasses, uh, to basically to feed the animal, to use the animal to to break down the nutrients which go back into the field, and and it really is just completing the cycle of the nutrient usage. Exactly. Exactly. It kind of satisfies my desires to to go out and walk around and, you know, makes it so it's not like I'm just going out and walking around wasting time. I'm actually getting something done. So <laughs> you're able to uh, to justify going out and walking around outside and, and be. That's right. Way. That's the main thing when you have cattle. It's, it's just a way to justify being outside. Yeah. Yeah. Got to yeah. go check the cows. We got to get the kids. We got to get the kids ready for school. I, I don't know. I got to nah, go check the cows. Sorry. I got to go. <laughs> I got to go walk the cows. Hey, we need to do this laundry. I don't know. I, I got to go move the cows. All right. So really great discussion here on Skype. We're going to keep the conversation rolling. So definitely seeing now a little bit of the potential to be more profitable per acre. It's a way to take revenue per acre way higher than what we can get through row crops. Um, you know, if you look at, at the margins on, on direct marketing grass-fed beef, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at what you can get for an animal, now granted your input costs are going to be higher than just, you know, seed and equipment and whatnot because you're having to buy calves and everything. But it takes the revenue per acre up. And then I've also seen some opportunities to have other species of livestock on that same acre grazing the plants that are already there that, you know, the cattle don't necessarily want to eat. So I see even more opportunity there to, you know, take advantage of what of what we've got going on to create even more additional revenue on that same acre. You open up that grazing operation and then it opens the door to, you know, you can stack a whole bunch of enterprises on the same acre a lot easier than what you could do with a row crop type operation. But how many acres, like, are you devoting to these 18 calves? And what about, like, some of the other grazing stuff you're kind of talking about there, like other animals that you're also able to now integrate? Right. So right now it's still very small in in relation to the scope of our entire operation uh i've got roughly at at the current time i've got eight acres that i was grazing throughout the growing season in 2019 um but like i said i didn't have any fence when i started this thing so i've been slowly investing in fence and, and adding to it so eventually Eventually, I'll be close to 80 acres here, and I hope to have 80 acres with fence on it in by the by the end of 2020. Um, so yeah, it the fencing part is my my biggest hurdle at this point because we live right on a state highway, and I, I need to have good perimeter fence to keep them to keep them off the road. No cows on the so, highway. No, I don't like. They frown on that. The yeah, highway. they frown on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't go over well when that happens. Are these also crop production acres? For the for the most part, these are acres that have been row cropped, but they're small, like the five acre patch. You know, it's a it's a weird triangle shaped patch with with my house building site out of it and two power poles in it. So it was a pain in the butt to farm row crop, anyways. 
so we're pulling that out of row crop production, at least for now, to be pasture. And I don't think that one will ever go back in. Um, but the other stuff that I'm looking at doing, I'm just building perimeter fence on it. And then like the next 25 acre patch, it's got about a 10 acre patch of row crop ground in it that won't be row crop next year. But I'm just planning on for the time being seeding annual forage crops on that row crop ground within that patch of 25 acres. And then that way, if in the future I want to bring that back to row crop or, or, you know, I'm just, I'm not planning on going in and seeding perennials right away because, because what, what I would like to do eventually is turn the grass fed beef into essentially a part of the rotation where, you know, go around and, and once every four or five years, you take a full growing season and grow an annual cover crop or forage mix or whatever you want to call it on those acres. And then that would just be a part of the rotation and you, and you rotate that around to get the soil health benefits spread out across the entire farm. And how do you have that penciled out in terms of like making this actually work profitably? Right. So obviously the land cost, that's, that's what, that's the big, the big thing here, you know, because I'm not working with land that, you know, is getting rented for $50 an acre or anything like that. You know, it's, this is good, this is good row crop soil and whatnot. So that's, that's the hardest part to pay is the land rent side of things. Um, you know, even if you own it, you still need to charge yourself something similar to what, what you would be getting for row crop, uh, type land rent. So that's the biggest difference is I'm, I'm working with some higher quality land and that's where I've kind of decided I'm not going to expand my cow herd any more than what I've already got. And I'm going to focus on the grass fed, um, grass fed and grass finishing side of things where, you know, I can turn that revenue around a lot faster and, and actually get the premiums for it. So I, I kind of danced around your question there, but, but I, I, really don't have a good answer for you on that. I don't think it would really work all that well because, you know, cattle, conventional cattle markets are kind of a tough thing regardless right now. From what well, I especially understand. at your scale too, with only a couple of calves, like, right. Yeah. Right. You don't have the economy of scale to play in and, yep. and factor. Yep. Yeah. And so especially think, at that yeah. where you've got a, a manageable, you know, you've got, it's a small enough herd here mm. where this is manageable, where you can do something like the, the grass fed, the way it sounds like it works out for yep. you really yep. well. I mean, why not go after that market? Yes, exactly. And and that's something that I'm, what I'm trying to figure out right now is, is cause I, I want to scale it up. Um, and I'm and the, the plan is to keep scaling it up, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what, rate of growth should I actually go for? You know, I did three animals this last year. Should I try and do 10 next year or, or is that too much? You know, because I don't, I don't want to get left holding the bag on, on a couple animals if I can't get them sold. Mm -hmm. So trying to get a feel for that and how, how everything's going to work out is, is something that I've been, I've been trying to figure out, uh, you know, here, and, and here how recently. have you been able to market those animals? You know, so, so starting out, like for, for a lot of our listeners here, you know, that 
don't have livestock that are hearing this and like, okay, I mean, yeah, there was some investment. Yeah, there was some some additional time and a little bit yep. of upfront cost, but I don't know where I would sell these things. How did you navigate that? Right. So I've I've just tried, and I haven't been doing it as good lately, but I've tried to keep my social media page uh, updated as far as talking about what I'm doing with the animals. And Zach and, doesn't believe you. you social know. media doesn't work. Right. Yeah. No. Zach, Zach's there's nothing not to it. No. Guy. It's a fad. <laughs> it's a fad. So, it's a fad. People so aren't been, on social I've been media. trying to. <laughs> I've been trying to do that, just keep people up to date on things. And and just by doing that, I've, I had people reach out to me with interest and in, in buying buying beef from from my from me, from my animals, you know. And so that's that's how everything's been sold so far. Um, so that's kind of the game plan moving forward is just to to leverage the social media to to market these animals. Um, you know, that's, that's what I'm struggling with to figure out, okay, how, how scalable is this? Because so far everybody's been, you know, a personal friend of mine that's bought it. Um, but at some point here, I'm going to have to start selling outside of my, you know, my own personal network. So you're going to have to find a larger market to pull from. Mm -hmm. Exactly. How close are you to a, uh, you know, to a larger population? Right, so we're we're about thirty minutes south of Iowa City, which Iowa City isn't really huge, but it's a it's a pretty liberal area. That's where the University of Iowa's at. Um, I've got a lot of friends in that area, friends and family in that area, and about half of what I sold this last year went to that market. Uh, people in the Iowa City area, so that's that's kind of where I'm looking to to move a lot of my my product too is is the iowa city area i don't know what the whole metro is for iowa city maybe getting close to a hundred thousand like yeah. So that, yeah that's a pretty solid so, population no, it's pretty solid. yeah yeah it's not you can bad. sell a couple and, calves there yeah and it's a it's a white collar area you know so so this type of product is going to be better received in an area like that than than a you know a yeah, blue collar sure working working class area not that there's anything wrong with that you know that's how i am but but yeah, that's the that's the target market for what I'm what I'm producing this product for. So I know from our personal connection that you've got some other livestock that you've integrated as well. Tell us about those. <laughs> you talking about my chickens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm a big time chicken farmer too. <laughs> I've, I've got. I can tell you're a yeah, massive yeah, chicken yeah, farmer because Mitchell was laughing when he asked, and you <laughs> yeah, responded yeah. with laughter. <laughs> yeah. So this, like, <laughs> yeah. let's hear the, the serious details chicken. on this big time chicken business yep. investment. Yep. Yeah. So I've got 13 laying hens. So they uh, they just kind of go wherever they want to go. They they live in the in the barn barnyard with the with the cows. Um, so they essentially just follow the cows around to wherever they're at and go scratch through their cow pies and, and everything else. And how and, do you, uh, at, at that type yeah. of scale, how do you manage the volume of eggs? Well, it can be difficult, you know, some, sometimes <laughs> he's sometimes got little kids. I, they can go run around and find them. It's yeah. like an Easter egg hunt every day, every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes the chocolate is terrible, by the way. <laughs> the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I get to, I forget to take my egg basket sometimes, so you know I got to take my stocking cap off and put the eggs in that, and then <laughs> my head gets cold. And uh, there's That's there's all funny. kinds of 
logistical issues. Go back to, you know, what are your advice for other farmers that are hearing this and like, I don't know, they're kind of, they were in the same boat that you were like, I don't know about this. I don't know. I know that integrated livestock is one of the components of soil health, but I don't have time. I don't have fence. I don't have water. What do you tell them? Um, well, I guess my, my advice for someone that is interested in it, but is dragging their feet a little bit is, you know, at, at some point, at some point push has to come to shove and you need to make a decision whether you're going to do it or not. Um, and if, if you think it's something that you want to do, then you, you just need to make it happen, I guess. Um, you know, you can spend as much time with cattle or as little time with cattle as you want. Um, it all depends on what, what type, what type of time availability you have. Um, you know, you don't have to start with a hundred head. You don't have to start with even 15 head. You know, you can start with just a couple and, and figure it out. Zach's going to go buy I, some cows and some chickens right yep. now. I'm going to start with chickens He's first. Already on <laughs> chickens <his> first. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Michael, uh, farmer from Washington, because there is an R yeah, in, yeah, in Washington. Yeah, Washington. Washington County, Iowa, just down the road from Mitchell. Yep. Uh, we appreciate you coming on here today. Um, interesting talk right there coming from somebody who who really just dove right in and went for it and is is just getting his feet wet figuring on Figuring it out. Yeah, figuring it out. As with yep. anything in life sometimes, you know, you just got to... Go for it. You got to go for it. Yep. Yep. I like to call it Mount Stupid. <laughs> are, you guys, are you guys familiar with Mount Stupid? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, that's... Isn't it sitting across from me? <laughs> oh, oh, serious burn. Yikes. <laughs> All right. Michael Vitito joining us today on the Fieldwork Podcast via Skype. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. It's been a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you, guys. Have a good one. That was Michael Vitito, one of Mitchell's neighbors and a row crop slash livestock farmer. We talked to him on Skype. After the break, we're going to hear from Dave Scott, a farmer who's had livestock for a lot longer than Michael has, and uh, but he's trying out some really super exciting stuff on his farm. Welcome back to Fieldwork. I'm Zach Johnson. And in this next part of the show, we're going to hear my interview with Dave Scott. He's a livestock specialist at NCAT, which is the National Center for Appropriate Technology in Butte, Montana. Dave's also a former dairy farmer who now grazes a couple hundred ewes, which he markets direct to consumers. Unlike Michael Vitito, who's just starting out with integrating grazing into his row crop operation, Dave's actually an animal guy who's reached kind of a, a pro level with his grazing management practices now, and he's seeing a big return. He's saving a ton of money and time with reduced irrigation and fertilizer use. Dave started out by telling me more about NCAT and what he does there before diving into the specifics of his farm. NCAT's kind of like a, a private nonprofit extension service. And we have six regional offices throughout the United States, and in each one of those offices there's... Um, three to six uh, agricultural specialists. My duties include writing publications, doing videos, doing podcasts on all things livestock. Um, since I am a sheep person with a dairy background, I concentrate a lot on sheep and goats and a little bit on the dairy. Um, 
Besides writing these publications, we operate a hotline for farmers Monday through Friday, and anybody can call us up and with a question about that they might have on their farm or just bounce some ideas off the wall with us, and we provide that service. Um, so that's basically what I do. How big of an area does that encompass? Or, or maybe there isn't an area. Can anybody call into that hotline and, and look for your services? It's nationwide, yes. It is nationwide, okay. Yes. Yes, and I should say, too, uh, Zach, that we concentrate a lot on the, um, you might say, sustainable or regenerative-type parts of agriculture. Sure. Uh, Generally, we deal with the expense side of the equation and try to hold the production and yield side of the equation the same, but we're all for lowering inputs, and that can be anything from less fertilizer to less irrigation expenses, less labor expenses, Um, So we're on that expense side of the equation a lot. Can you tell me about some of the success stories or maybe some of the stories that just happen to be your favorite over the years of of working with people? Well, I guess I've got a personal one I could start out with. Uh, We started milking cows on our farm in uh, Whitehall, which is 32 acres of irrigated pasture in 1982. 2003, we sold the milk cows and bought about 200 ewes. Uh, we always fertilized with about 150 to 160 units of N to grow about six tons of dry matter of pasture. And we have almost all grass pasture. That's something we're working on to try to get legumes in it. But it's basically 95% grass. And so grass needs nitrogen. And about 2013, I heard Gabe Brown and Dr. Christine Jones speak at a conference and they really opened my eyes to uh, not really having to use fertilizer if you can get your soil to function for you. So uh, we went on a transition program right then. took us four years to transition off of that 160 units per acre. Uh, but we've been on, you know, off that transition for the last three grazing system, uh, seasons, and we've fertilized zero units of N and we've actually increased our grass production to almost seven tons the acre, up from six. So that's a personal success story. It hasn't been without its challenges, but uh, it's sure nice not to have to pay, you know, $125 to $150 in the bad years per acre of fertilizer. How have you gone about doing that? How how did this happen over that four-year transition? How did you achieve this? We basically followed... uh, Christine Jones's recipe that she laid out at the conference. Uh, it was the Quivera conference in New Mexico in 2013. And she basically said to uh, uh, half of it, take half of, of your fertilizer the, ne- the first year on your transition, then half it again, then half it again, and then you're at zero. We, what we did is we went from 160 units to 75 units, the first year of transition, I got kind of cold feet. The second year, so I kept it at 75 units. And then the third year, we went to 32. And then the fourth year, we were at zero. And, of course, we were monitoring all, all the time using the Haney test, uh, kind of tracking our, our um, mineralizable nitrogen according to the Haney test. And it was giving us confidence that we had enough N out there to do the job to get our yield. So just by cutting the nitrogen out of it slowly, 
I mean, what was the management practice that changed that still allowed for the production to be there without the nutrients or without the nitrogen specifically? Yeah, we changed our grazing from short grass grazing, which is about, we grazed 18 to 20 inch grass. We changed that uh, by lengthening our rest period from 30 days to 42 days. And so we went from short grass to tall grass grazing. And what that did was it gave the grass plants enough time to photosynthesize and to emit root exudates in the soil to the soil microbes. And those that really made a big difference because once they could emit the sugars to and feed the microbes, the the microbes brought the end back to the plants. It's kind of like a deal. You know, the plants aren't going to give the sugars to the microbes through the roots unless the microbes give the nitrogen first. So you're just Um, allowing a little bit more time for that natural cycle to take place. Right, yeah. And then coupled with that, Zach, when we had tall grass, all of a sudden with high stock density grazing, we were able to, to eat half and trample half of that grass. So there is, you know, if we went into a paddock that had 5,000 pounds of dry matter per acre, we had enough stocking density. We had about 600 ewes and lambs on that acre for one day. And what they didn't eat, they trampled. And so that pressed that grass down right close to the soil surface and the microbes were able to get at it. And that's another source of carbon that they could use. And so they proliferated because we gave them more carbon than we ever had before. And so before we get into the return on changing this management practice here, I'm curious, how is the production that you're, you're, you know, that you're taking off of there? I mean, the, the production of grass that you require, I assume, is still the same as it was before when you were using nitrogen. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So you, yeah. You, you require the same amount of tons of grass in order to achieve the same goals with the ewes. So right. are you getting that same production now without any use of any nitrogen? Yes, we are. And what has happened, Zach, is, is we, when we went to a tall grazing system, that increased our grazing wedge at any given time during the grazing season. And the grazing wedge is that amount of grass that is available to the sheep. And so when, you, when we quit grazing uh, our summer season in Labor Day, around Labor Day, we end up with a lot more grass with the tall grazing system, about two and a half times more than we did with the short grass grazing system because we just have taller grass all year, all summer long, right? So... So are you able to raise more animals or more pounds of of animal on the same amount of acres? We did drop a little bit in our our average daily gain for the lambs. It went from about 0.65 pounds per day to about 0.62, which for us is about $1,400, $1,500 at $1.80 a pound with 280 lambs. Um, So that was a little bit of a discouragement, but actually what we were saving was close to $300 an acre by we saved about $125 an acre in average acre, average year on fertilizer about another $100 an acre on uh 25% less irrigation that we had to apply because 
we covered that ground now. It's just flat covered with a roof on it of trampled grass, which kept the moisture in the soil. And then the other one was about actually about 2.3 times this amount of winter grazing that we have with those ewes. So our ewe days um, has actually increased in the fall by 2.3 times. So if you add all those, those savings up, um, it's about $300 an acre. Wow, that's, that is quite a, really an Im- impressive difference there to be able to pull your nitrogen practice out of that and still be able to, to come up with the end result, really, and, and save that kind of money. That's a huge change. Is that, have you seen this practice work for other people? Are there other people that you've worked with that have seen the same results? I have come in contact with different sheep producers and cattle producers in Montana um, that are grazing similarly, and they are using less nitrogen also. They are. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so the sheep also are an integral part of this as far as the nitrogen that's required on that land, I would assume, right? I mean, Absolutely. That's yeah. where the nitrogen, a lot of that nitrogen is now coming from is by having those ewes out there on those acres. Right. Actually, when, when a cow or a ewe or any herbivore, when they eat grass, uh, 70 to 80% of what they eat goes out the back end, <laughs> you know, in terms of nutrients and minerals, including nitrogen. And so, you know, that's the way nature has designed it. Um, so that's actually all we're doing is we're recycling those nutrients through the sheep and then back um, into the into the soil, and and we're feeding microbes that way. Sure, I mean you're you're just you're completing the nutrient cycle that we talk about a lot on this show. Right. Yeah. The nutrient cycle is is what we are keying on. We're using the sheep, and when a herbivore eats uh, any grass, eighty percent of what it eats in terms of the nutrients and minerals goes right out the back end. And so, nature has designed that system so that. You know, what goes out the back end feeds the microbes in the soil, and that, that is what cycling nutrients is all about. And, and it's, it's already, you know, it's an efficient cycle because the animal has already processed a lot of those nutrients into an available nutrient for those plants to be able to up, uptake a lot easier. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the other thing it's doing is those rumen microbes that are in the rumen of the, of the herbivore are oftentimes the same microbes, you know, for farmers speak anyway, that's in the soil. And so that you or cow, in addition to just, you know, pooping out, you know, plant available and bacteria and fungi available nutrients, they're also pooping out more fungi, bacteria, nematodes, and protozoa that can take hold right in the soil ecosystem right then and there. So it's it's like an inoculation in addition to a supply of nutrients. So with the kind of success that you're seeing out there, have you brought that back to um, a lot of the farmers that you work with um, through NCAT and, and just seeing other people try to take on practices like this? What does that look like when it comes back, you know, not from just your personal farm, but back to what you do uh, with being the livestock specialist over there? Yeah, this last summer we had a regenerative grazing uh, workshop at, at our farm, and there was 50 people that came to it, uh, and it was there was a lot of excitement, um, especially when when I could tell them that you know we're we are generating through savings or just uh, 
more grass produced in on winter stockpile. We're generating $300 an acre. And so I could see the wheels turn. You know, this is just 30 acres. What if you had 100 irrigated acres and you could do the same thing on 100 irrigated acres? That's $30,000. That's a long, a good way to producing a farm family income. And so people were pretty excited about that. I would imagine so. I mean, when when you're talking that that kind of money, $300 an acre, it doesn't matter, you know, how many acres you do or don't have. That's a that's not an insignificant amount of money for any farmer out there. So I would imagine that that gets people's attention a lot. Yeah, you know, Zach, I wish I knew about this about 30, 40 years ago. I could have bought two or three pickups by now. <laughs> oh, there you go. Because <laughs> that's what farmers do with extra money. We buy pickups, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to throw in, whether it be on on your farm or with what you do at NCAT or anything like that? Any other words or, or stories you want to get in there? Well, I think if somebody's considering uh, this at all, you know, I think the the biggest thing in terms of challenges is, for me anyway, was number one was myself. Um, Getting my mind hooked over to the idea that this just might work, you know, and then trying, trying it. That's the first step is just trying. And then the second thing is, you know, like Ray Archuleta always says, uh, you have to have integrity, you know, stick with the program, you know, stick with it five or six years. And and then you're not out too much if you do it on a small part of your place uh, and just see what happens. You know, you probably will come up with problems, but using uh, – the big thing that we learned was use biological fixes to solve a problem instead of chemicals. Sure. And that really has helped. And, you know, I would never, ever go back to our old system of, of grazing. Um, not only are we saving money, we have more time for ourselves now. You know, instead of constantly inputting fertilizer and constantly moving pipes and and getting irrigation going all the time, uh, we've got a couple, three days out of the week where if we want to go camping, we go camping. And the system takes care of itself. So there's actually less labor involved with this system for you as well? Yeah, there's about 25% less labor on irrigation. Wow. You know, as as an example, we used to irrigate under our old short grass system. We irrigated every day of the week. Wow. And under this new system, we go every 10 days on a 10-day cycle. So, you know, instead of a 7-day cycle, we're now at 10 days, and we're getting the same amount of grass. Well, that's uh, definitely an interesting story there. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Dave Scott, Livestock Specialist at NCAT out in Montana. Also a 200-head sheep farmer himself with some really interesting stuff to talk about there. I thank you for coming on with, with us and sharing that with us today, Dave. Well, Zach, it's been my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me on. Well, Zach, it's now time on the podcast where we get to hear from our listeners. We love getting their comments and questions um, on our voicemail. Yeah, if you're a listener out there who would like to call in, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 651-228-4810. 651-228-4810. And maybe we can include you on a future show. Let's hear what we have for a comment today. Hey, my name's Miriam Hoffman, and I'm a college student majoring in ag business economics. Um, I have a background in sustainable ag on my family farm, and I'm very interested in that as as a career aspiration. Um, and my question for y'all is... 
how do we kind of open up the narrative in agriculture, particularly in, in youth and student organizations like 4-H and FFA and in our college ag programs, things like that? How do we open up that narrative to talk about sustainability and regenerative practices in a, in a practical way, in a way that doesn't incite um, kind of defensiveness, because that's something I've seen a lot of times is we start to talk about sustainability and then we kind of get defensive um, on the mainstream side. So I'd be really, really curious to hear y'all's insight um, on how we can kind of move the needle in a positive direction in those areas. Big fan of the podcast. Um, I'm looking forward to season two. Thank y'all so much. Well, Miriam, thanks a lot for calling in and um, really good insight there, I think, too, you know, on how do we get young people involved in this, yeah. especially from like the FFA, 4-H side of things? Yeah, that is, that's a good question. And, and to be honest, I think it's happening. I really do. I think there's a lot of young farmers out there involved in these organizations, uh, young farmers involved in agriculture that are talking about this. And I think uh, it's not a taboo subject um, and, and you don't have to be defensive about it. I mean, we, we need to have the conversation. So I, I think that is starting to happen, but that, that is a good question. Yeah. Well, and I think as young people, like because of social media and stuff, we're just a little bit more honed in on maybe what the consumer is talking about and what um, non-farmer audiences are talking about in terms of sustainable agriculture. Um, but I, I think we can also see what's coming a little bit more as well on what the social pressures are going to be in the future. And we can start implementing that um, through FFA and 4-H. And, and uh, I know when I was in high school and in FFA, uh, we were really fortunate that our FFA had a really big land lab. We had like 125 acres that we were farming um, like my senior year of, of FFA. And we were utilizing that ground there to kind of try some things out. And uh, I know they've done some things there with um, even scouting and soil testing and managing better for fertility, managing insects and pests better, um, looking at things like you know, re- reducing tillage and diversifying the cropping rotations and stuff like that. So I think that is a really cool spot, you know, to get the young people involved, trying things out on those farms where you don't have risk as well. Right. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen there is you learn from your mistakes, yeah. you know, so you can always chalk it up to that. So thanks a ton for the voicemail, Miriam. Um, again, if anybody else out there wants to leave a comment or a question on our voicemail, you can leave that at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. That's it for our show today. You can always find us online at Fieldwork Talk. We're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Did anybody out there learn anything useful on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Of course you did. So So share it with your friends. Tell them to follow your great example by subscribing to Fieldwork wherever they get their podcasts and see who can leave a better review. I think it should be a competition. Well, and we can be their friends too, so let us know what you learned as well. Hit us up online, and uh, you can find Zach at Minnesota Millennial Farmer. I'm at Continual Mag. This show today was made possible with the help of Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless-Cole, Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Eric Romani, Kristen Schmidt, and Lauren Humper. Our theme music is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans with help from Corey Shreppel. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Fieldwork Podcast over now. You stay classy, farmers. <laughs>